The, 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 the host here is Jeremy Hobson. What if we had not starved Amtrak since Richard Nixon 50 years ago? What if it wasn't as half-assed as it is right now? What if cities were more seamlessly connected? There's infrastructure that we all benefit from, and there are things that are hugely dilapidated. And if, if the world is going to loan you money, you might as well use it to constructive purposes. This is the Hobcast. This is the Hobcast. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Thank you so much uh, for being here once again. This is episode 11. And I've been thinking a lot about a few different things that have been going on recently and how to get at them in a really interesting way. For one thing, in Washington, uh, the powers that be are debating a generational investment in infrastructure and in the future in all kinds of ways from child care to elder care to, you know, electric vehicle charging stations, things that the federal government hasn't done before on this scale and could really make a difference in so many ways. It's happening at the same time that we're seeing stories on the front pages of all the big papers every day about rising prices, inflation, a supply chain crisis, which does matter when Washington is thinking about spending a lot of money. And at the same time, we are just weeks away from an election in the state of Virginia and in New Jersey. But let's focus on Virginia for a second. It shouldn't really matter for people who don't live in Virginia, but you're going to find out it actually does matter because a lot of people in Washington are paying attention to that election. And so how can we get to all of these things? Who could possibly answer questions about all three of these things? I thought it's got to be Robin Farzad, host of Public Radio's Full Disclosure, longtime business reporter and resident of Richmond, Virginia. Robin, it's great to have you on the Hobcast. How are you? Thank you for having me. Uh, it is great to have you. I've known you for many, many years since I was at Marketplace, uh, and we met up, I believe, for lunch in New York City uh, when you were still at Bloomberg, and you were a guest on that show. You were a guest on Here and Now, and now here you are on the Hobcast. So I want to start with the question of inflation, because we just got some numbers out that show that uh, it was more than 5% prices were going up over last year in the month of September. How serious is this issue right now, inflation? Well, I think if you ask mom and pop, and I don't mean to you know, descend into trope territory or anything, they'll tell you that inflation is definitely there. I, I don't back out volatile food and energy costs and everything else like that. Where are we seeing inflation? We've seen it in rental cars. We've seen it in travel. We've seen it uh, in the supply chain and, and markets. At various points, it's visited the butcher block. Uh, and yet I find that the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Federal Reserve and the like, they can dissemble in a certain way to tell you that capital I inflation. Well, we haven't had that feeling here since 1979. And right. I, I just don't know if I buy that. Well, let, let me let me play you a couple clips because the, I've been looking around at what some different people have been saying about this. So this is Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary uh, for President Clinton. He was the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under Obama. Uh, and here's what he said. So I think we're looking at a very serious uh, kind of uh, situation. Um, I hope I turn out to be wrong. And certainly markets are still expecting that I'm going to turn out to be uh, wrong. But uh, my sense is that the preponderance of risk is very much on the side of overheating. 
So that's Larry Summers. This is Nicholas Bertram, who is the CEO of Giant Foods, which is the big supermarket company. Here's what he said. Uh, Honestly, by June, we had already had the same number of cost increase requests from manufacturers that we got in the whole of 2020. And it just seems to continue to accelerate. Of course, we ran it through our, um, you know, our commodity strategy team to make sure that the costs are warranted. Anywhere we can push back, we always do. And anywhere we can absorb the cost for customers, we try to do that as well. But honestly, everything continues to get more expensive right now. And then here's one more. This is the current Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, uh, speaking on CNBC. And here's what she said. ...of that supply bottlenecks have developed Mm -hmm. um, that have caused inflation. I believe that they're transitory, but that doesn't mean they'll go away over the next several months. So, Robin, when you hear that, you know, there are a lot of opinions there. What, what, What do you think? What transitory? What is your uh, look? All of this stuff is unprecedented. Everything coming out of 2008, 2009 was unprecedented with the interventions of the Federal Reserve and the huge market melt up in the decades since uh, the global economy shutting down over two days in 2020 in the spring of 2020 was unprecedented. And then the extent of bond buying and going and buying corporate bonds and municipal bonds and everything has been unprecedented. So to come out of it with kind of a milk toast, oh, this is transitory inflation. I'm not. I'm not so sure about that. Look at try to jibe that with the fact that no one can hire anyone right now. $15, $20, you want a metro card, you want a couple of other bonuses, you want free lunch, you want extended weekends once a month. I feel like that is the front line of this battle. Uh, people are going to say, I'm not showing up until you pay me significantly more. Finally, labor seems to be getting leverage. And I'm not convinced that those small business owners and small, you know, medium-sized business owners are just going to absorb those those wage hikes. They're going to pass that down to customers. Customers are going to feel it. And you're going to get something resembling wage spiral inflation. But don't you think that a lot of that hiring issue and, and people quitting their jobs has to do with the fact that people don't want to be working on site right now because they're either worried about getting COVID-19 or they've gotten so used to working remotely and they don't want to go back into the office. And so they feel they have some leverage right now, or they've gotten used to their life in a way in the last year and a half that they hadn't had before. I agree. And I don't want to short shrift that, but how are they balancing the books? Uh, The last leg for special enhanced unemployment insurance for the states that didn't opt out was September 6th. So you have very real costs, and maybe those costs are muted because of the eviction moratorium or various other one-time extraordinary things, but this has to catch up with everybody. We always see that stat and how many people in this country cannot afford an emergency $1,000 expense, and I think it's, it's tragic. And so many people are paycheck to paycheck, and they're going to need that paycheck. But I do believe that they have leverage in the interim. But what is causing the prices to go up? Because if you ask somebody like Janet Yellen, she would say, well, it's the supply chain shortages. That's what the problem is. And this is just going to be temporary. And then once, you know, people figure out how to get cars made more quickly or whatever, the prices will come back down or not go up as fast. Okay, so suppose when that happens, do these reluctant workers then relent and say, you know what, I am going to sign up for that nine dollar grind at a diner again in person dealing with unruly customers. Take COVID out of the equation. No, I'm not convinced that that's going to happen. I feel that that so many times in these declines, it's been capital over labor, that this is maybe I think it's been one too many times. You remember, Jeremy, after 
the bailouts of late 2008 and 2009, you know, TARP and, and everything else, you thought if ever there were going to be there's going to be an opportunity for people with pitchforks in the street as evictions were happening, Wall Street is getting bailed out. That didn't happen. And the stock market and bond markets and real estate markets have had ridiculous surges since and income inequality has only been exacerbated since you have seen a huge boom in populism and kind of I, I want to wreck the system maybe instead of being a part of it. And I think that that is going to translate into workers having wage cred and wage leverage at this point. And I'm not, again, I'm not convinced that those are transitory inflationary pressures. I believe that they're going to get passed down. I believe that everybody's going to feel it. And people are also going to be emboldened to ask their own bosses for a raise. OK, so so given all of that, what Republicans are doing right now is they're taking that. They're saying prices are going up. Inflation is going up. So therefore... You should not be spending money on the future of the country. <laughs> you should not be passing these giant bills in Washington to prepare the country for decades from now, that we don't have the money to do that right now because we're already seeing all this inflation. What about that argument? True. There's something to that. And maybe there are bond vigilantes lurking somewhere out there. They haven't been seen for the longest time. But for all of this profligacy and supposed profligacy, our 10-year Treasury is yielding 1.52%. And explain you know, explain to the Hobcast listeners what that means. That the 10-year treasury is it's a very safe investment for people for investors to go into. It's the it's the dollar. Yeah, that's the if you want to if look, if if something goes wrong, people pile into United States treasuries. It's the redoubt of safety. And if you don't believe the United States is creditworthiness right now, and, and indeed 10 years ago we had our credit rating downgraded by Standard & Poor's, but that's neither here nor there. If you believe we're profligate and, and we're going to come off this fiscal cliff and the spending and the three and a half trillion dollar plan, you wouldn't be loaning money to the government of the United States, Uncle Sam, for 1.52 percent over 10 years. And it's another ridiculous number over 30 years. There's something that is uh, extraordinary about the United States is even if it's the epicenter of the problem, people seem to pile into our debt, keeping our borrowing costs down. So there is a school right. of thought that's saying if people are going to give you this kind of money, if there's such a surplus of global savings, you might as well go spend it on useful capital investments, infrastructure. I mean, Jeremy, you've covered Amtrak so well. You, you're like, I love reading your stuff and listening to your stuff about infrastructure. What if we had not starved Amtrak since Richard Nixon 50 years ago? What if it wasn't as half-assed as it is right now? What if cities were more seamlessly connected? What if it didn't take so many hours or they didn't have to switch the engine when you're going from Richmond to New York and you have to stay an hour in D.C.? There's infrastructure that we all benefit from and there are things that are hugely dilapidated. And if, if the world is going to loan you money, you might as well use it to constructive purposes. Well, and I remember doing a story many years ago for Marketplace about Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, um, deciding to pull the funding for this new train tunnel between New York and New Jersey and the Hudson River. They, they have one, but it's very old. And so they, he, 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 they were having this big you know, federal-state partnership to pay for the new one. And he said, we're not giving any more money to this. And I remember talking to this economist in, in New York City, and he said, look— He's only hurting himself because 
people want to be in this place where there's all this opportunity, Manhattan. And if New Jersey doesn't have an easy way to get there, then Long Island and Connecticut will make one. And then people will want to live there so that they can get into the center of opportunity. It does end up paying for itself but does, in but the does long he, run. Is he, is he really hurting himself and that he wasn't going to stay in that office forever? I mean, he crashed <laughs> and burned. He a, bridge, office, right? a, bridge, a bridge did him in, ironically, right? And right, so that's, the, that's, that's right. the problem is these investments take a long time. And those people who give them the green light are not there to benefit politically, I imagine. Uh, look at how long the, the Tappan Zee Bridge, the controversy over that. Look at this this tunnel. Jeremy, isn't there one overland bridge, a rinky-dinky bridge? I think it's 200 years old somewhere in the Meadowlands or something that somebody actually has to hit a hammer to jam it back into place. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding. It was in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal. Superstorm Sandy, apparently. When was that? That was nine years ago, wasn't it? And we still haven't done substantially all of these repairs. The entire economy of the United States is beholden to this one, you know, salt deteriorated tunnel that can't fit all of the trains going back and forth. Right. And we put that off for so long. I mean, look at look at the Lexington Street subway station. New York City had a financial crisis in the mid to late 70s, and it decided to punt on these investments. And the city and the global economy are paying the tab for it now. Well, and as I've said before, can you imagine how much smaller the U.S. economy would be if we didn't have the interstate highway system, which was put in? in the 1950s, starting in the 1950s. That that was an infrastructure investment that cost a lot of money at the time. And in fact, today, it is how we get everything from here to there, a lot of things. You um, know, the one the so, one stat that I've cited the most that I can't get out of my head, and China has whole other problems and neuroses and a you know, bubble and everything else like that. But didn't Bill Gates famously tweet that China in the three years after 2008 used more concrete than the United States did in the entire 20th century? And in huh. fact, hedge fund manager Jim Chanos used this as a short. He flagged it and he said to his analyst, can you go double check that? And they're like, no, he, they really did. They did this for all this high speed rail, these ghost cities and these buildings and everything. And that might be a situation where, you're, where it's kind of literally a Ponzi scheme. You're just <laughs> building and building and hoping and hoping and hoping and there's going to be a tap to pay. But we're the, kind of the other end of it where we are putting off investments on these things. Where were you in 2007 when that bridge in, in Minnesota collapsed? Or Right. I mean, people forget. Yeah. Uh, so actually, that brings us to, to what's happening in Washington, uh, and that will probably be figured out, I think, in the next few weeks, maybe even before the election in uh, Virginia and New Jersey, which is, does the Democratic Party come together with the help of Senators Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and actually pass the reconciliation package of however much it's going to be between probably 1.5 and $3 trillion and the infrastructure package that's already passed the Senate with a filibuster-proof majority. So will they be able to do that? It sounds like what you're saying right now is that that um, they shouldn't worry about inflation when it comes to whether they're going to spend money on long term investments in, in the country, especially if they offset a lot of it with with tax increases. But do you think that they'll be able to get this through? I, I mean, it boils down to those two senators. And you talk about, you know, we use the metaphor of New York City's economy boiling down to that one tunnel. Kirsten Cinema, who's not exactly, you know, hugely popular, who, who came to office in a kind of a roundabout way. And uh, uh, Joe Manchin on the other side of the country, who's an idiosyncratic Democrat, maybe Democrat in name only, that's just the way the system works. And I imagine cynically that if you pork barrel this enough, you know, give them enough monorails in West Virginia and in Tucson, 
<laughs> it'll it'll right. work. I mean, everybody has their price. Uh, you know, throw in some concessions to the coal industry. I don't know. This is one of those things where you talk to Democrats, and my sources know that it's going to be a drubbing in the 2022 election, and they're going to lose seats, and they'll probably lose the Senate again and everything. So you might as well kitchen sink it. You might as well get in these things while you can and, and hope you have something to sell to the country in 2024. Even if you have to rename some airport, the Joe Manchin International Airport. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's talk about what's going on in Virginia, because this is something that I think, you know, I, I've learned about this over the many years of covering politics uh, in Washington. But the, the fact that these special elections matter so much, I was talking to somebody who works at a major company the other day. And I was asking him what he thinks is going to happen with the infrastructure and reconciliation. And why don't they just put the debt ceiling increase into the reconciliation bill? He said, because they are going to pass their infrastructure and reconciliation. Then they're going to wait to find out what happens with Virginia, whether Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, is able to win. And then they're going to figure out what they do with the debt ceiling because they want to take the temperature of the country. Oh, yeah. do, you think, do, you, do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. It's what I've been hearing left and right, that this is a this has always been treated as that particular canary in the coal mine election that you get a year after the presidential election. It's the first true test and and what how you know how you should shape the message going into the midterms. And uh, Virginia is a, a, a curious indicator species in that it's gone Democrat presidentially in the four elections since Barack Obama was first elected in 2008. Prior to that, as far back as I can see, it was it was straight Republican, Republican, Republican. Uh, even, you know, going back in the Jimmy Carter huge win in 1976, it was still a Republican state. And so the demographic changes and the fact that Northern Virginia is a very different state than where I am. And certainly as you go towards Roanoke and tobacco country and some other areas, it says a lot. Look, you know where I was in 2014, uh, where my congressman back then, Eric Cantor, who was, I think, the second most powerful guy in the House, he was beaten in a primary by this guy, right. Dave Bratt, this Freedom Caucus person who is a lecturer from Randolph-Macon College. And that was unthinkable. I mean, Eric Cantor, why would you why would you do that? And a lot of people here thought he wasn't tough enough on immigration. The the constituents didn't see him enough. And prior to Trump winning, I think it was considered the biggest upset, election upset in like a hundred years. It got a tremendous amount of attention and it augured how the Tea Party would kind of control things going into twenty sixteen. And I'm really curious to see if Youngkin can rest back control for Republicans. That's the Republican re- who's yeah. running against McAuliffe. Used to reliably have a Republican governor. You are term limited and that, you know, McAuliffe has been governor before. He hasn't gone to the Senate and this kind of revolving door thing and he's coming back and it should be an easy thing for him to win. But and yet it's so close that they have Obama coming in. They're throwing everything, the Democratic Party at it here so that he can he can eke out a win. But didn't we just have sort of a a temperature taking of the country with the California recall election with Gavin Newsom, who was able to easily win that. The Republic of California is a whole other nation. You know, if they isolate it (laughs) out, wouldn't it be the world's sixth or seventh biggest economy? Wouldn't it be one of China's biggest trading partners? Fifth, Robin. Fifth, yeah. I mean, (laughs) you spent a lot of time in SoCal. I mean, there's only so much you can learn from California. Uh, maybe Virginia is more indicative. Maybe Florida. Maybe, maybe Virginia's, but, but Virginia's become much bluer very quickly over the last many years. 
I just think it's the explosion of Northern Virginia, which is effectively D.C. Charlottesville right. is blue. Here in Richmond, I mean, look, the monuments just came down. The place is turning bluer, but there are huge pockets of, uh, I mean, country club Republicans, MAGA Republicans. On I-95, you could still see a Confederate flag that, I don't know, was the, the granddaughters of the Confederacy put up. Tr- like, Trump's not going to go and stump for the Republican in the Virginia Yeah, that's, that's the thing, because McAuliffe is running that ad ad nauseum that shows Youngkin talking about, you know, extolling Trump. On education, whose lead would Glenn Youngkin follow? President Trump represents so much of why I'm running. That's right. Glenn Youngkin would bring Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos's education policies to Virginia. It's one of those dangerous things. You want to court enough MAGA Freedom Party people, but not to the point that you have to have Donald Trump here and, and so you could be vilified from the opposition's photos. Okay, so if you had to make a prediction right now about what will happen in Virginia and then what will happen with the, with the infrastructure and reconciliation and then what will happen with the debt ceiling, what would you say? I think McAuliffe still manages, because this is a this is a, an operations guy, a DNC guy, he still manages to eke it out by a point or so. It's a lot closer than it should be, but Biden isn't super popular right now. And, you know, I guess a month after Afghanistan and with COVID lingering on and with the supply chain shocks and oil prices going up, I think that'll follow into the midterm. I think he's going to get walloped like Obama did in 2010 and, and, and feel that. The infrastructure package, I think— Cinema and Mansion both have their prices. Uh, Biden is a Senate veteran, so something will get passed. And uh, you know what can I say? I'm I'm more worried about what everything looks like in 2024. Is this the candidate that the party wants to put forward? Is he going to be too old by then? And then they don't have someone necessarily with the popularity in Kamala Harris. There are so many, so many moving parts. Hmm. And what about the debt ceiling? Yeah, that's something that, you know, they've played played chicken with the debt ceiling so many times. I mean, McConnell just blinked, blinked a few days ago. I I think it's so cynical. I mean, stuff that's already been paid for. It's it's kind of ridiculous that it's it's kind of a symbolic statutory thing. I mean, well, the other thing is Republicans have spent a lot of that money. Probably more than half of that money has come under Republican control of Washington. Yeah, but there's a great doctor, Dr. Evil tactician elements and like why don't we pair this with the profligacy of the democrats real time and making it look like they're raiding the debt ceiling thing to pay for their three and a half trillion dollar wish list and that you know the optics of that work i hate to say that and and say what you will about mitch mcconnell he is a master tactician a master gaslighter i mean we're a year removed from the death of ruth bader ginsburg and they got you know they refused to consider Merrick Garland's nomination after Scalia passed away and everything. And they got three. He he probably holds his nose and has an, a clear disdain for Donald Trump and the people of Donald Trump. But he got the deliverables there. He got three Supreme Court justices. This is stuff that you could keep parlaying into elections into the present. You know, uh, just you remind me because of all these debt ceiling fights that there have been. I, I just went to the dentist the other day. I have had. Uh, a night guard for many years because I'm a I've been a teeth grinder since I've been in the news business and the dentist said to me the other day you haven't been grinding your teeth very much and I was like yeah that's because I haven't been doing daily news for the last year <laughs> that's probably it it is it really stressful is nice. and it is depressing and 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 people have have, have said this you look at you know, the stuff you have to I, I mean we're, we didn't even talk about seven hundred thousand plus deaths could you have imagined when that first night when we were told the NBA was going to punt on the season and when universities were going remote, that this would be lingering this long? 
That is Robin Farzad, who is host of Public Radio's Full Disclosure, longtime business reporter and Virginia resident. Robin, so great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Anytime. Thank you. Well, thanks again for listening to The Hobcast. You can rate this. You can share it with your friends. Please do that. Thanks again to Andrew Haig and John J. Richardson for production and engineering help. I'm Jeremy Hobson on Twitter, at Jeremy Hobson. Talk to you next week. 